welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. On today's episode, we have a sex educator and therapist, Brandon, join us for a conversation about challenging the status quo to bring about sexual liberation. Together, we talk about the healing nature of kinky play, the human need for physical touch and intimacy, and navigating the complexities of fighting for truth. Dear listeners, this was such a special episode to record with Brandon and to edit back and think about the importance of more expansive ways of play and intimacy in our sex lives. I'm always telling people that if you want to see the effects of patriarchy, look no further than your own sex lives. I'll be the first to say that, you know, going through purity culture and all of that upbringing, I was taught such restrictive ways of embodiment, such restrictive ways of connecting with other people. And, you know, Brandon talked about people who feel like something is wrong with them for not enjoying the sex that they're having and people who find out that maybe they're a little kinky and that actually being the impetus to a whole sexual exploration. And I will say, I love vanilla. I do. But what I have found out is that I also love all 31 flavors of ice cream (laughs) and that those other flavors have actually made it much easier for multiple orgasms. And so, you know, when we look at the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and I had mentioned this in the podcast that there is a female orgasm disorder, and we're looking at high rates of prevalence of this disorder. And it just makes me wonder, you know, Maybe there's nothing wrong with us. Maybe there is actually a lot wrong with the sex education that we've been given. Maybe we've only been given one flavor of ice cream and we want the whole 31 flavors, y'all, okay? I am going to keep talking about those 31 flavors because I think that when we look at the high rates of prevalence of female orgasm disorder, we know that if this was any other disorder, there would be so much research going into what is going on here. And so, y'all, I am passionate about bringing this out into the, you know, common discussion about what's going on. If people are suffering, we need to be having conversations about this and opening up to different ways of intimacy and play with one another. So, y'all are going to continue to hear about my research in this and all. Y'all, I have some really fun guests coming up in the lineup. I can promise you that. So definitely stay tuned each week. We're going to be diving into those 31 flavors more so. And also, I want to give a quick shout out to one of our newest Patreon members, Kirill. I hope I pronounced your name right. 
Thank you for joining the Patreon and for supporting the long-term sustainability of the podcast and all of this research. I appreciate you dearly. Y'all, I'm posting about my own lived experience with rope, with latex, with all that sort of stuff on Patreon. So if you want more of a personal scoop on what I'm exploring right now, then you can check that out and the links are below. Y'all, I hope you enjoy today's conversation and learn a little bit more about what your own flavor profile might be from today's conversation. Y'all, tune in. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Do you have any questions for me before we start? I would just love to hear from you what the intention of this podcast is. I'm so curious about it. This episode or the grand scheme of the podcast in general? Yeah, the grand scheme. Like what, what started? Like how did you start it? What was the impetus? Yeah, so the impetus was... I think studying feminism and just so many ideas that I just wanted to get out in the world. And then there was specifically a um, situation, like the actual impetus was one of the person who had sexually assaulted me had like contacted me after many years and it created such discontent and I was so frustrated. And I went to my mentor at the time and I was like, there's so many fucked up things about the society that really need a change. Like, what do I do? And she was like, you need to start having conversations with people. And I was like, yeah, I do. And then so I the podcast kind of like formed from that, but it kind of expanded to much more, I think, because I come from a conservative background. And so, you know, my mom and sister are Mormon. Like there's so many conversations to bridge our gap of connection of how I see the world to their world. So that's kind of what I started with first of like, let's have these conversations so people can hear like real voices, real humans that are talking about their experience. So it kind of started from that of trying to just cover like a wide breadth of things that I think a lot of people don't understand and don't feel connected to. Like my sister had never chatted with or talked to someone who was gay like just that alone I was like okay we need to get some conversations out there and like something accessible like the podcast could facilitate that and plus it's fun right like I'm a researcher this is just like this is just good to me like I can talk to other theorists other people in the field that are leading and challenging the status quo in ways that help me grow too so that's awesome thank you for sharing that I I, I wasn't aware of of how this arose out of your own experience and how it became really this uh, creating these bridges and offering exposure because exposure it really is key. And a lot of times we have so many resistances to it because it feels threatening mm-hmm. and to create an opportunity for folks to, to be exposed at their own, at, at more of a comfort level, right. At a distance, I think is crucial. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's something about I think a podcast that is unique in the connecting with a human experience and all the inflections right of that conversation and that dialogue compared to reading content obviously that's important but you don't get the same human connection in that of hearing the voice and hearing the yeah the emotionality in someone's writing and pieces and that's how we become human to each other right it's through our stories yep exactly right so if I have someone who, you know, is completely transphobic and we have a trans person come on and talk about their experience and how, you know, 
how wonderful and how beautiful and how happy they are to be in their full body as they are. Mm -hmm. I hope that that can do more than just writing about it or hearing about it. Like that is a level of human connection that I think kind of like you're saying is just, it's very powerful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's what lives underneath a lot of politicized conversations, which the personal is a political in so many senses. And also we can sometimes if, if we're only talking about these topics at that political strata, it mm. feels hard to connect to the human element underneath becomes more of a, a of a game or a challenge or, you know, my side versus this side. Absolutely. It lives more in that power struggle rather than that, that restoration of empathy. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Absolutely. And yeah. That's exactly, you know, like I want to bring the revolution, you know, right? I think we all do in some ways. And like, how do you do that? Mm -hmm. I think conversations, right? Like one at a time. Yes. Yeah. 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 And especially for me too, as someone who's poly, like so many of those ideas are just radical Mm -hmm. and can be a lot for people to digest. And so I liked the idea in terms of like having a podcast also that doesn't just talk about that because then it, it brings people in. And you mm-hmm. get exposed to ideas that are maybe different that you would have never thought about, you know, mm-hmm. in a way that would have been more um, isolated if I just made a podcast about polyamory, you know? Yeah, there tends to be more of a ceiling on that. And then, um, you know, that can still be wonderful, but it, it's much more susceptible to becoming an echo chamber, right? And yeah. less of a less of an influx of, of newer folks from different perspectives. So absolutely, absolutely. Sounds great. I'm, I'm honored to be a part of it. Oh, and, thank um, you. And, and I'm curious what you're curious about and how I can be an agent in your revolution today. Hell yeah. Well, you might not like that I'm about to push it back onto you because that's kind of how I do this is Great. if I were to come in every time and have my own direction so directly and know what I want to talk about, the show would only ever be my lens of the world, right? Mm-hmm. That's also why I really like to let the guest or have the guests choose who comes next. So then it's not me, it's not me directing all of this, you know, like you were nominated by someone and you will nominate someone. And so in that, I take a step back and wanna talk about what you wanna talk about. Yeah, great. Yeah, (laughs) I know, yeah, so. (laughs) I wanna talk about the role of gender and sexual liberation in this revolution and, and, and the types of, of movements and also work and and from my particular background being coming from a clinical background and now doing the work that I do as a sex educator and as a surrogate partner, Mm -hmm. the role that I see that playing in public health Mm -hmm. and in sexual wellness and Mm -hmm. in liberation. Mm-hmm. I'm ready. I'm ready. Yeah. This sounds like a very fruitful <laughs> conversation in my kind of Saturday morning. Like truly, I get excited <laughs> right. about all of this. I'm, so, getting the, I'm getting the same feelings right now that I used to get about Saturday morning cartoons. <laughs> you know? Does that mean we're nerdy? Yeah. <laughs> I think so. I think yeah. it means we're on, we're on the right track. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Tell me where, where does that conversation start for you? It starts with the core themes of safety, mm-hmm. honesty, and play and the role that those have in restoration and transformation. Mm -hmm. And that's why I do the work that I do. So a lot of people don't know or aren't familiar with surrogate partner therapy. In brief, it's a sex therapy, more than a sex therapy. It's actually, Mm -hmm. it's an intimacy modality Mm -hmm. that works on a triadic model. So a surrogate partner Mm -hmm. is a trained uh, and supervised professional who stands in as a relationship partner temporarily with a client who has extreme barriers to emotional and physical intimacy. Mm 
right? And that could be due to a number of reasons. That could be history of trauma, um, genital pain, uh, sexual naivety, right? Never, some people have never had a debut. Mm-hmm. Uh, gender transitioning so learning to be in their body in an intimate way or to negotiate mm-hmm. from from their authentic gendered experience when they've been socialized in a totally different way that's one of the cases that i'm working on right now mm-hmm. and and their therapist right so it's always the three of us mm-hmm. and we work in tandem and that and that's for a number of reasons one this is it is work that takes on a lot of emotional vulnerability and there's risks with that just like there's risks with therapy like anytime you go right. and you sign the paperwork for therapy there's always there's there should be a section that talks about the risks of engaging in the work because you're deliberately heading towards the you know your wounds into your work and stuff's going to kind of come up yeah yep. sometimes it's going to be super rough yeah so we try to get out in front of that and name that from the very beginning but with the three of us working together it has a collaborative approach um, it flattens some of the hierarchy of power that can sometimes exist even in in just a, a, the dyad of the therapist client right right so, and we all consult with each other. So after I meet with a client, right, if I have a surrogate partner therapy session with a client, I do a number of things. I have a meeting with their therapist, who is also going to meet with them following our session. Mm-hmm. I have a meeting with my mentor, mm-hmm. who is a certified surrogate partner, so has a lot more experience than me. Mm-hmm. So I'm consulting two ways on that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I might even have additional group supervision with my peers. Yeah just to add all those checks and balances and make sure that I have my own support for one. Right. And also to make sure that this work really can deliver on its goal, you know, keeping me oriented towards the client goals, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's really tough. We are deliberately setting ourselves up into um, an extremely vulnerable and intimate situation. We are engaging in relationship to even Mm -hmm. further degrees. I mean, you've heard about, I'm sure people, how they can form bonds and attachments with their therapists, right? Yeah. And, and, and there's a lot of ethical protectors around that. There's, a, there's still clinical distances there, mm-hmm. right? Even, yeah. with, even with really close bonds with uh, therapists. But surrogates are, are taking a step further in, right? And one of the biggest differences is that we engage in touch, mm-hmm. right? And it's all um, contextualized, clinically directed touch activities when we get to those stages. But basically what we're, what we're focusing on is establishing communication skills relaxation skills, mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea behind surrogate partner therapy is that we we learn in real time how to co-regulate our nervous mm-hmm. together, right? Mm-hmm. And in doing so, picking up tangible skills that can be remembered and practiced right. on their own so, that, so then the client can develop self-regulation on top mm-hmm. of that. And then when our work comes to an end, they have both a lived experience with another person who is also engaging in emotional and physical intimacy with them and the skills that they've learned for regulating themselves and for communicating their experience and their needs and their limits with partners in the future, mm-hmm. who they can then teach how to be with them. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, that it, that's in a nutshell, right? But it's the kind of thing when I, every time I feel like I describe it for the first time to somebody, I'm like, I wish I would have had that. Oof, yeah. I wish it, 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 mm-hmm. my, my, my young even, even before my own sexual debut, I mean, I think about, I think about, I'm 41 years old, right? Mm-hmm. And it took me, if I could have had access to something like this half my life ago, what would, what would have been different? Wow. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel really passionately about the work. And in terms of the liberation, I think sex education and skills for intimacy and wellness and learning how to have healthy relationships, communicate effectively 
and to take care of oneself, that is liberatory work. Because if we do that and we generate more intimacy in our society, more skills for navigating conflict through vulnerability and less through gaining schemas, less through power struggles, mm-hmm. non-consensual power struggles, I should say. Right, right, exactly. Because <laughs> there are some, there are some <laughs> real good power struggles yeah. that we should definitely be very having. Fun. Uh, <laughs> very fun. Um, I think that the better off we'll be. And the less, the less reliance on really unhealthy coping skills and uh, unhealthy social models will be. Right. You yeah. know, and that little, that little hint there is uh, around power struggles is that I also come from a kink informed lens being somebody who th- that's what a transformative experience in my own life. I want to hear the whole story <laughs> on that too. <laughs> <laughs> and continues to be, and it's very important to me. And, yeah. um, and I bring that approach and not, not all surrogate partners do, right. We all come, we all come from different walks of life. So I should say it's also rare for a surrogate partner to come from a clinical background. So I, I'm actually kind of a rarity in this world, mm. having been a therapist myself, yeah. uh, surrogate partners come from all walks of life. Some of them are yoga teachers, some are engineers, some, you know, are, are have adjacent professions as life coaches or something, you know, some such, some are our former sex workers themselves. Right. So they bring these right. very different lenses, which is incredible. Right. Yeah. And I come from a clinical background which uh, I think is a real boon in many respects. Um, It's a challenge for me because I have to remind myself that I am not the therapist in a relationship. Mm. So I like that I get to bring all of my learning and my skill to it, but I have to remind myself that there's somebody else in that role. And if I can remember that, it actually frees me to be more present as the Mm -hmm. partner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's one one thing I know that is, can be a challenge to Mm -hmm. come from my background Mm -hmm. and not just shift into therapist mode. Right. But uh, I also bring a kink-informed lens and I think that that's really crucial because, as we know, folks who are kink aware or identify as kinky themselves, when we're exploring our sexuality, there's a lot that gets lumped into a normative trajectory of intimacy equating sexuality through a heteronormative cis lens, right? And the further along you get on that, the healthier you are. And that is true for a lot of people, but it certainly isn't true for everybody. Right. And in fact, if we're going to do honest work where we're really openly exploring uh, what turns us on and, ha- and what we notice in our body when we're having different sensory experiences, different kind of consensual dynamics at play, many people have found that their sexuality, what they what they would de- define as a sexuality, actually lives outside of even genital contact. It lives within a ki- what we would call a kink context, which right. at the at the end of the day. I think all of that is the normal range of human sexuality. At the I end of the day, I am in agreement with you. Yes, yes. So, so that's a lens that I bring to this work too, <clears throat> because what I don't want to do is, and I don't think I don't think uh, most circuit partners do this, but what I don't want to do is give a client the impression that I'm going to set them on some sort of prescriptive track, and we're going to get to you know penetrative. Uh, heteronormative sex and that's going to be their cure right that's right. that's how they're going to know that they've made it that's how they're going to know they're healthy and that's what they should be able to do in a healthy relationship i don't do that i don't front load any of that crap amazing um, yeah we, we we explore in real time we learn how to play together mm. you know we learn and that playfulness that alone the experience of play which is like i think from a nervous system standpoint is activation without fear right so feeling the activation features in our body, similar to ones that, that might come online when we are, when we feel threatened or we feel afraid, but we feel them in an exhilarated way. We feel right. them in a playful way. Right. Being able to re-experience that, which we take for granted as children, because we do it all the time. But as adults, it gets trained and, and squeezed out of us by the rigors mm-hmm. of, of having to perform adulthood in our society, mm-hmm. and the, pressures, mm-hmm. the pressures around that. 
And uh, so just simply restoring play mm. is a core feature of it because then we can say, well, what lives in that state of play? What else is in there that might have been forgotten or marginalized? What can we pick up in, in that place? And how does play allow us to explore? Mm. When we play, we feel safe, right? And when we feel safe, we feel open. When we feel mm -hmm. open, we feel adventurous, right? And so establishing a connection that has a secure base, right? Which we do through a lot of communication and negotiation, setting boundaries, right? Talking about limits, right. um, doing a lot of radical communication around that. You know, this is before we ever get to any touch. Right. And then every tiny step along the way, we do consent games. We uh, use somatic language to describe what's happening in our bodies. And we find a common language because every relationship, every intimate relationship um, has its own language. Right. And so learning that is part of the key. And that takes time to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's just, a, I feel like I could, I could just go on and on. I know, it. I love it. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm wondering at this point, like what questions have come up for you already just so far? So many. I think immediately I'm thinking about the amount of like pushback that you probably get in the field of psychology. And even when I've brought up conversations about recording with surrogate partner therapists, um, the amount of pushback I've gotten from my supervisors, even about that idea, right? And it, and it just makes me sad. Because I think that this work is so needed. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate your discussion of all of these pieces and like the way that you're talking about, it. I think it's very necessary to have this conversation so that people can work on that bias, right, of this being problematic or outside of the lens of what can be healing, right? I mean, talking about consent, learning how to build that and learning how to do play. I mean, these are necessary things for us. And I think yes. people really need to slow down and ask themselves what is it that they're so afraid of by this idea? And I think part of it comes back to the whole taboo of sexuality in general, right? And all of the pieces of like, oh, can this therapist be aware enough of their own, you know, counter-transference or transference, whatever people talk about in that language, which I don't necessarily believe in because I think that we are always having human responses to one another. So I don't think putting into that like language of counter-transference and transference is just a way to like, disconnect from the reality that no matter who you're with, you're going to have a relational dynamic with them. Okay. And that's yeah. just being human. And yeah. so I appreciate you talking about like the different levels of supervision. That's part of, you know, what we do in therapy is sit with other people who can look and see the parts of ourselves kind of like, you know, rear view mirrors, being able to see the parts that maybe we don't see in our own lens. And so it just breaks my heart. I think at first of what I'm hearing of like how beautifully this practice is intentional and healing and so necessary. And still, even with all of that, I just feel like you and me sitting here facilitating this conversation, like we're fighting against an uphill battle here of like the whole world of psychology that is so restrictive to what can be healing. And that just frustrates me. It is frustrating at times. One of the things that I do is I actually do trainings for therapists. Good. Good. Yeah. <clears throat> and and because there are there are understandable, unfortunate but understandable concerns that therapists have. Right. The, the the three main ones are um, legality, liability, and client safety. I get it. I, right. I've been clinician myself, and I understand that. The first one is that everybody asks, right? Is is it legal? And that's really interesting. That's an interesting question to ask. And I think people ask it because they feel like it ought to be illegal, which it isn't, right? But why do we assume that it is? We assume that it is for a number of reasons. One, we live in a profoundly sex-negative culture, which is also profoundly hostile to sex work, right? And so which makes most people, even very progressive people, 
leaving a lot of therapists ill at ease, right? One of the things when I was in clinical practice is I, I worked at an explicitly sex worker affirming practice and I had a number right. of clients who are, who are former or current sex workers. And I co-facilitated like monthly support groups with sex workers. And one of the things that I feel like is intentional or not, but an act of erasure is the fact that sex workers have been doing therapeutic work since the beginning of time. Sex workers, before the, before the practice of therapy was even a moat on the horizon, sex workers were touching people, not only physically, but emotionally, were hearing people's stories, were engaging in wound work, right? And yes, of course, there's a, there, there are lots of risks and, and there's a lot of fucked up stuff. I, I swear a lot. Is that a problem? Not at all. Swear okay. away, baby. Swear yeah, away. There's a lot of fucked up um, stuff that happens around sex work. And, but a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's not a protected class of labor. It's not a recognized or protected class of labor, right? So there's yeah. no protections and it's in easy to exploit in this country, right? Exactly. So the, the more exploitable you make people, the harder and the harder it is you make them to practice their work safely, the worse that shit's going to happen. And the more concessions they have to make about their own safety in order to live. I get really fired up about this. Can't and wait. so this is exactly the space to bring that energy. Mm. And sex workers have been doing work that is therapeutic forever. Yes. And a lot of therapists don't know that. And the ones who might don't want to acknowledge it because it's an uncomfortable feeling. And so this is not all surrogates would, would describe it this way, but I think of SPT as crudely put as a merger between psychotherapy and sex work into a real, a tangible guided practice towards uh, wellness and public health. Because the more the people know about their own bodies, first of all, which I don't know if you've had sex education in this country or what passes for it, but fam, it's abysmal. Yes. You know how many people have never seen their genitals like up close? Have never know. have never seen anything, any any part of their body below the waist, mm. you know, or their own anus, anything. Mm. I mean, just whole parts of our bodies that are both forbidden because they're taboo or they're seen as unclean. So just learning one's body, how to communicate about one's body, how to be in one's body, and then how to share one's body and share in another body. Mm -hmm. right? These sound like very simple things, but the there are so Huge. many barriers to this. And it liberates people, it makes people free yes. to do this. Mm -hmm. And free people are harder to control. They're also harder to sell shit to because they're not trying to put out fires by consuming products. So there's a threat to a certain kind of status quo in sex work itself and certainly in this practice. And mm -hmm. my perspective is I, I recognize sex workers as my fucking peers. Mm -hmm. in this. Yeah. So I don't, I don't play the game where because I'm in a practice that isn't illegal and is clinically recognized and is, and is within a modality that is therapy. And this mm -hmm. is therapy. And I can call it that, that I then say, well, I'm not like those other sex workers. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm not going to play that fucking game where, because I get, I have certain kind of privileges and protections or recognitions, right. 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 That I shunt others behind me yeah. and separate myself from them. Mm -hmm. um, just so I can hold on to the favor of a more normative society. I'm not going to do right. that. I've chosen a different line of work and uh, I will advocate for the rights and the safety of all kinds of sex workers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I stand in solidarity with that. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and honestly, uh, other somatic pr practitioners and therapists should do the same. Yes, completely. Yeah, the amount of sex workers that have come onto the podcast and talked exactly about what you're talking about of their work being so healing and even 
people who have experienced healing by being a sex worker themselves, right? Yes. They're, I think, at the core of everything we're talking about is increased intimacy, right? And all of the layers of shame, particularly around sex and connection that are getting in the way of our ability to be intimate with other people, whether that be in relationships or through physical acts. There's so many layers there that we're trying to break down that are getting in the way of us just being able to connect with other people. Yes, yes. It also exposes at the same time the grand hypocrisy. Like we live in a culture that is malignant capitalism. And so, which means that property is equals worth right and so owning things owning property is a measure of your humanity it's how you count in society and so if you're going to have a voice that says property equals power it also equals your humanity property equals your personhood right because think about people who have who are experiencing houselessness right who have nothing to own are literally ignored it's like they don't exist mm -hmm. right yeah but if you're going to emphasize property then one would say that the body is the first property oh but wait not everybody's body is their property and also certain types of uses of the body in order to survive or for enjoyment or for pleasure right that don't profit anyone else we're not going to allow those and also certain gendered bodies aren't their own property mm -hmm. um, and so their own their own health and wellness and what and reproductive and pleasure choices can't count for them. So there's a challenge to the order of things in both the liberation of sex work and, and even just acknowledging it as a uh, legitimate work. Mm -hmm. And certainly my line of work too, right? It begs the same question and it makes a lot of people uncomfortable um, and people need to get uncomfortable because we don't learn otherwise. Yeah. Yes. And, I don't understand quite literally the argument against it in many ways, right? If as someone who's a therapist, I am opening myself up to a relationship with a client, right? That is going to affect me. I think so many people in the psychology field are like, oh, there's so much harm for sex workers and the potential for that. And I mean, one, I think that's part of like what we said earlier of it not being a recognized profession that should be protected and have unions and other sorts of things that are there for that. But as a clinician, like I'm also no, also opening myself up to a lot of harm and putting my brain and my emotional capacity in relationship with another person. And a sex worker is doing that and adding aspects of their body or other forms of energetic connection, right? Like when we look at it that way, like really, what is the difference under capitalism? We're both selling parts of ourselves. I'm selling my time, energy, and right. emotional labor, and they're doing that and their bodies right like or whatever form of connection what's the difference there other than a societal judgment on sexuality mm -hmm. i just i don't even get the argument you know like when we really sit with it i just don't get it at this mm -hmm. point mm -hmm. yeah but there's some flimsy arguments around you know around public health which is how a lot of laws were framed early on right and anti-prostitution mm -hmm. laws were around uh you know outbreaks of like what used to be called venereal disease. You know what actually makes a difference with that? Not making sex work illegal, but funding sex education and making safer sex practices uh, funded mm -hmm. and accessible to the public and free. That's how you do that. Yep, exactly, exactly. Yep, it's like the same thing with outlawing abortion, right? It's like if yes. you don't want people to get pregnant, 
maybe we started start with better sex education we start with contraception we start with other things right this they're not aiming at the right spot or i guess they are with their own societal thinking but it's so problematic that it just drives me nuts at this point and the data doesn't support any any of right. those platforms right at the end of the day like the pub no public health data supports any of those like moralistic agendas it doesn't so it doesn't work you know the other core element of why spt is important because it has a similar impact to sex work, which is we are creatures that are made for touch. It literally helps form our brains and our nervous systems. Mm-hmm. When infants don't receive touch, they, uh, they, their brains don't develop properly. They can even die. They can die. Exactly. Yep. Right. Yep. We know that, and from a clinical standpoint too, the experience existentially and Somatically, the experience of isolation drives human beings literally insane mm-hmm. and can draw out truly aberrant behavior, including, including suicide. Mm-hmm. We're not made to be isolated. Mm-hmm. Right? And touch yeah. is a huge portion of our connection. Mm-hmm. Right? We have magnificent capacities for language and technology that helps us see face to face. But there's no substitute for touch at the end of the day. And especially if we're working, if we're seeing each other as nervous systems that have old tracks for trying to survive horrific experiences and trauma, we have tracks that are well laid, mm-hmm. right? That, that was us doing our best as an animal to survive. Right. If we want to build new track, like that old track's not going anywhere, it's going to stay there. We have to build new track and we need to be able to touch to, to complete that. I think talk therapy is a magnificent device. One thing that I noticed in the course of, and why I switched to becoming a surrogate partner is that mm-hmm. in the course of many of my cases, I saw limitations to talk therapy in certain mm-hmm. cases because there was no substitute for touch. Right. And I wanted to, uh, I wanted to look into a practice that was going to be clinically guided, but right. included that, right? And there are many now, right? The sexological body work, other forms of body workers, right? Um, that do either uh, like self-guided or mm-hmm. one or one-sided touch, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wanted to live more squarely in that relational piece, yeah, because it's it can also be uh, so crucial for us for a client to learn how to how another body experiences their touch, right? How to listen to another's desires and limitations, yeah. right? to get that feedback as well, mm-hmm. and to live in that dynamic, that fluid dynamic, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right, of active and passive, giving and receiving. Right. right in real time and i wanted to, i wanted to go into that mm-hmm. to that to that level mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think of um pelvic floor work with physical therapists now who are starting to do that it's very this um accepted sort of physical touch practice that is being healing and within a medical model right and Good. I'm glad we're getting to this place. I'm glad we're starting to understand and expand and realize that there is healing through doing these touch-based practices. And kind of like you said, though, that is very limited in that it doesn't give you that dynamic of back and forth, of learning back and forth. And I think some people are really lucky that maybe they've had partners in their life who have demonstrated this type of communication. I think about what you were saying about kink and at least my experience with stepping into the kink community of having people who do kind of teach you in some ways how to communicate, how to step into that, how to name your desires. And the people who've had those sort of relationships are really lucky to have had those and learned and grown through those, but not everyone gets that opportunity. And some people need support in the same way that we need therapy, right? Because 
my parents weren't emotionally mature in that way and my community didn't have that and I need a relationship a therapist right or to be able to facilitate that sort of discussion it's the same exact thing we need someone to be able to help us to facilitate how to do that and how to step into that relationship and so it's so beautiful that you're able to help people heal in that way by being in relationship with them mm -hmm. thank you yeah and and that's essentially it and so much of it too is just like and this happens to a degree in, in talk therapy mm -hmm. people come in feeling like they are broken mm like something is wrong with them and what they actually need, they don't even need that intensive a work. They just need to, to, to learn that their experience is actually pretty normal and what their interests might be is pretty normal. Mm. So, you know, go, you know, going back to my kink cleanse yeah. is that there might be some clients who have had extreme barriers to navigating intimacy because a lot of like normative touch and sexual trajectories haven't made sense to them. Or maybe, maybe they're on a spectrum of uh, ACE, right? Mm -hmm. of sexuality or demisexuality. Um, maybe they're just fucking kinky. Right. And so we'll get to a point pretty early on where we realize that that's it. It's like, oh, you're actually, you're not broken. You're just kinky. So here's some communities you can go. Here's some resources. And here's a kink community. You're actually fine. You just, yeah. did, you just didn't know. And you didn't have access to, to resources that um, reflected your experience, reflected your interests. And so a lot of times... I like to put myself out of business by linking people to care, by normalizing their experience and linking them to resources, right? We don't need to work together for a year. I'm, I'm doing, you know, I'm, I'm doing all these different kind of intensive practices, slow, slow titrated stuff, because that's not actually where the issue lies. The issue lies is that we have piss poor sex education and a lot of resources are underfunded, unheard of and um, restricted. So mm -hmm. let me put you in touch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, exactly what scares me is the amount of people who think and have internalized that something is wrong with them when there is quite literally nothing wrong with them and they have a unique type of sexuality that is brought to life in a specific type of way within kink and if they just knew that all of this would expand in that way but until you kind of know that that's an option for you or until you figure that out the amount of pain that you go through beforehand. And I think that's where my heart breaks in all of this for those people right there that don't know. Yes, me too. <sighs> me too. And to see the, the wash of relief or almost disbelief at first and then relief <sighs> and like, oh, I'm not, there's nothing actually wrong with me. I thought there was for years. I've been carrying this complex for years, right? Or this, this distorted belief for years. And it's not their fault. Right. No. But I try to empower people to have the responsibility to show up to their own desires. Yeah. And dare I say, do you see them light up afterwards and feel alive and living? Yes. We all deserve to feel that way. Right. And I think because of all the societal conditioning, there's just so many layers to unlocking what it is that you love, what it is that brings you light, especially within sexuality, right? Because of all of the taboo, all of the shaming around kink. I just, behind all of this is our life and vitality, right? And feeling fully in our embodied experience and feeling fully able to express ourselves and be joyful in that. And I think that's why it's so important to be having these conversations because of yes. that switch for that person and their whole life feeling radically different. And I think you kind of spoke to that in your own experience, maybe of if I would have had this when I was younger, 
what sort of life could I have been living? Yes. Mm. And if I can offer that to somebody, whether they're, you know, whether they're, you know, in their twenties or their seventies, that it's not, that it's never too late. Mm-hmm. 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 And I think it's so important to deconstructing the narrative of what sex is, right? Like you said. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. I and I feel like, I, especially as a, uh, an AMAB masculine practitioner who works with a lot of femme folks and a lot of AFAB folks. I also work with trans women, mm-hmm. um, but I work with a lot of AFAB folks. Most surrogate partners are cis women. Mm-hmm. Just historically, that's been the case. That's how this profession started. Mm-hmm. But now it's much more diverse. As there's more trans practitioners as well mm-hmm. and um, non-binary. Mm-hmm. But being somebody from my socialized experience, right, and my gender experience to be able to show up to somebody and decenter uh phallocentric sex that alone is kind of revolutionary yes <laughs> yes yes yeah because there's no loaded answers so it, it, right it's a lot of, it's a lot of unlearning and unloading a lot of the scripted answers about what sex is even in the first place mm-hmm. therefore if somebody feels like well i don't feel like i can't experience the sex it's like, well, what, you, what is it you're talking about because you can experience something that's going to give you uh, a gratifying and satisfying and connective experience. We're just going to figure out what that is. And that might not look like anything that you've been told is sex before, but it is sex for you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. And I think I did a presentation in one of my feminist uh, classes about women's experience with sex. And I know this is very gendered, right? And that's kind of the language that we live in within Mm -hmm. the DSM and the world of psychology, at least currently. But the research on, you know, the DSM has, it's over there, that's why I'm looking. The DSM has specifically female orgasm disorder, which, okay. And when we look at that and the prevalence of it, I believe it said 40 to 60% of women will experience this at some time in their life. Okay, if we had a disease or some sort of diagnosis that 40 to 60% of people were experiencing, I think we'd be doing a fuck ton more research on that to say what is going on there, right? And I think part of that is exactly what you're speaking to, which is a phallic-centric understanding of sexuality, okay? And not everyone enjoys that, right? People have different pieces in that. But exactly like we said earlier, what is happening is something's wrong with me because the normal status quo of sex is not bringing me the joy or the orgasm, you know, that I want to experience. So something is wrong with me versus no, something is wrong with the system. Something is wrong with the type of sex that you have been sold as pleasurable and being able to see that switch. And, you know, the DSM is pathologizing the person who's experiencing that rather than understanding that this is a societal context that's really fucked up sexuality for all of us. And I'm just like, ah, you know, mm-hmm. crazy. I just can't go over that amount of statistic. And like, if we knew 40 to 60%, like that's, that's normal then at that point, right? Like 50% of people experiencing that, that's normal. That's not abnormal anymore. And we really got to be asking questions about what that means. Yeah. It's either an epidemic or it's normal, but we're not really responding to it in a way that asks the question, right? Ask the real question of, I wonder why this is so statistically high. Yeah, it's a good what's, question. Yeah, I huh. wonder what's going on with women. 
And it's, I mean, well, that's the whole thing, right? Originally, the whole context was they're so complicated and the female orgasm is so elusive, you know, like that whole thing when really I think we kind of like we started this conversation, we are still getting out of a heterosexual phallic centered understanding of sexuality. And I think all of that you know, less than a hundred years ago, women were property, women, you know, marital rape wasn't considered rape, right? All of these pieces are why we are still suffering from this and even trying to get un out of an understanding of gender and sexuality that's based specifically on these restrictive binaries. I mean, like, this is how we got to this space. And I think a kink is a whole other added layer where within the psychology field, any sort of sexuality was supposed to be purely pleasurable and non-pain based which i understand pain is pleasure right but like any Ew. sort of time i know right any sort of time that there was pain they were like well that's actually maladaptive that's not normal that's all this sort of stuff so like we're still grappling with all that and the amount of therapists that are even enacting harm by judging their clients even in those little microaggressions of how they respond to maybe a dynamic where someone brings up oh i really enjoyed you know having my throat choked with consent right and like the therapist going what you know like those sort of little micro interactions are causing harm and all of it not to blame the therapist it's to blame this larger societal system that has got us to this place now that I think we're still healing from collectively. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 It brings it back to, to the other two concerns. We talked, we talked a little bit about legality, right? Mm -hmm. But liability and client safety, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of therapists still have those two other concerns, right? Their license liability, which that's the one that I lend the most credence to mm -hmm. because, you know, licensing boards are their own, that, that they don't reflect necessarily like federal state laws, licensing boards okay. can set their own ethical standards, right? And so, that is a risk that you undertake uh, as a therapist, right? Is that licensing board hears about SBT and it's like, I doesn't know about it or, mm. or, you know, feels squicky about it. Now it has never happened. There, there isn't a documented case of any therapist, first of all, being prosecuted therapist or, or a surrogate partner being prosecuted or anybody losing their license for being a collaborating therapist in SBT okay. hasn't happened. And so the liability concern is really kind of a, um, it's tangible, but it's more, the fear is bigger than the actual reality of it. And I have to talk therapists through that. And obviously the more informed, if you take the time to educate yourself, the more informed you are, the better relationships you have with surrogate partners and you can mm -hmm. bet them, right? Mm -hmm. And you end supervisors, right? The better practitioner you're gonna be and right. the more you reduce risk. Right, right, right. And the same thing with client safety. If you learn about what to talk about, if you learn about SPT and you learn about what to talk about, you learn about how to talk to surrogate partners, you learn how, you know, you learn the credible sources to go to for vetting, you reduce risk. And also, if we want to talk about risk, and again, I come from being a therapist, what are, what are, I think I, the statistic might be out of date now, but a few years ago, what I learned are, are the two main ethical reaches in therapy. One is HIPAA violations, because a lot of that happens and people don't even realize it, mm -hmm. especially be because of the uh, like the digital age of uh, transferring information. People make all kinds of ethical, ethical violations or HIPAA breaches, right? That's, mm -hmm. the, that's, one of, that's the number one issue for liability mm -hmm. concerns mm -hmm. and client information safety. Mm -hmm. And it's either the second or the third is therapists having inappropriate relationships with their clients. Yeah. So before you come for me, <laughs> <laughs> let's look in our own house 
right? And also know statistically that happens that happens more often with male identified therapists, yep. right? Exploiting power dynamics yep. uh, with vulnerable female clients. Yep. Which again is not uh, is not a femme problem. It's not a women's problem. That is a men's problem, which we should be talking about and elevating. But what we don't do is look at another profession that is intentional and informed and deliberately uh, modeled to uh, assist with client goals and barriers to intimacy and say, well, we can't have, because we have this problem in our house here, we can't have you being loud and mucking about. Now, we're part of the solution, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. and, and just like with therapists, there are, there are uh, you get a range of practitioners, and I don't know about you, but I know I have met plenty of therapists who ought not be doing what they're doing, but, you know, really ought not to be doing what they're doing. Yeah. Um, that's going to be true in any profession, mm -hmm. right? And I'm yeah. sure it's the case. I'm sure it's also the case in SPT. Yeah, human. Um, you're right. It's humans, right? And we're working with intimacy. We're working with feelings, right? Mm -hmm. So, and we're working with bodies. Yeah. So, but it's easier to look at a pronounced risk with us, A, because there's more taboo surrounding it. Right. And B, we become the projection of mm. what's already happening mm. in the house of therapy. Right. Right. Uh, the projection of that, you know, of that risk or of that fear. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you were talking about the legalities, I think it's an important thing for all people to sit back and think as therapists and clinicians or anyone trying to do healing in the world. Right. The point is healing. And very frequently the laws are not in accordance with healing. OK. Right. And we know that we know homosexuality, interracial marriage. I mean, all of the things were illegal, okay? Even psychedelics, right? So I do, right now I'm training with uh, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy with ketamine, but I'll do integration work with people who are doing substances that are illegal. So mm -hmm. someone can come in and bring their psilocybin experience in and talk to me about it and have a therapist integrate with them. That experience is illegal, right? But mm -hmm. the, the healing, is outside of that legality and we have to be able to hold space for that and really mm -hmm. ask deeper ethical questions that are much more complex than what's the law say on this and i think that's part of the whole thing too where therapists get afraid and then they're like ah and then i even want to push you more so i'm like okay so why did you come into this profession i understand your own risks but like at the heart of it is to help people heal right and there's going to be risks with that and then it just frustrates me for people to get locked up in their own safety rather than understanding that their client could benefit from something that is not yet approved by the system and i think eventually yes. will be and um i had to read a uh, women in madness for my feminist therapy class which specifically talked i had this whole section about male identified therapists that would have sex with their female clients and reading transcripts of their experience of what that was like and i think you're you're not even comparing the same thing like not even close and so I, I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation because what happens in those dynamics is a therapist who uses their power dynamic to for in a lot of different ways you know manipulate the client to think that they're the special one to think that they're the only one doing this to think that quite literally some of the transcripts I was reading was that this was their only way to healing is that they have to do yeah. this, right? And like that model is not even comparable to what you do no. of having consent from day one and voluntary consent rather than manipulating the power of that dynamic to 
trick and completely use these people and these it was horrible to read those things and so i think you're pointing out something that is so true people are so afraid of it because it's happened in house so then they're like oh we can't have this but it's not even the same system because of all the things you've talked about of consent discussion a non-linear progression to some sort of sexual eroticism all these sorts of pieces supervision right oh my god having another therapist in this dynamic it is not even close i appreciate the concern that everyone has for this but we really need to take a step back and sit with our discomfort and fear and take a moment to process that and expand ourselves to other types of healing <laughs> yes. yes. You know, I feel alone sometimes. I'm not going to lie because I say this stuff in my programs and with super, sometimes with supervisors and they just look at me like I'm nuts and I'm just like, fuck, okay. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a par- it's a paradigm shift. Yeah. You know, it, it really is a paradigm shift. Yeah. And I'd like to think that we are, we are still, e- even with very alarming setbacks, especially in the larger political sphere that, it, you know, that are very, very concerning the the larger and slower movement the arc is still moving towards decriminalization and openness and accepting because it's how can we not yeah the deeper wisdom at play is kind of uh irrefutable you know but because it challenges so many systems of of power that have been in place for a long time those will necessarily have to change yeah in order to accommodate what I think is is ultimately the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I right? completely agree. Yeah. So, but that's the tension between stability and uh, liberty, mm-hmm. right? Is that it ha- there has to be there has to be a dynamism mm-hmm. in there in order for in order for changes to go, you know, a little more smoothly. But not all change needs to be smooth. So I guess we're going to find out how this goes. Yeah, burn the system down. Um, <laughs> I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing and, you know, working with clients and talking with therapists. And I also do, I also do intimacy coaching, which is much more like talk therapy. Yeah. Um, and uh, I teach consent workshops and I work alongside medical professionals to teach contraceptive workshops mm-hmm. as well on college mm-hmm. campuses. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Good. We need you. <laughs> and we need you to keep doing this these conversations are enlivening, you know, it can feel lonely, it can feel lonely doing this work, like you just said, and it's good just to connect and have these conversations and feel kinship um, and community. Um, Mm -hmm. And you never know who's going to listen to this. You never know. Mm -hmm. I've been Mm -hmm. waiting to hear some of what is going on here or who will be challenged by some of what we're going to hear. And even if they don't address it now, it's going to plant something. Oh, absolutely. That's all of this work is planting seeds, right? And waiting for them to blossom in their own time. And it, it might take years. It might be a cicada, right? That gets planted into the ground and waits 17 years before popping up. And that's that's part of life is being able to sit with that discomfort and the patience. And I think that's our thing that we have to process too. And I, I want change now, you know, um, that it it's slow, but you're right. It's conversations like this that I think are going to bring about that change when people can sit with that discomfort to open themselves up. Yeah. Yeah. Well then let me hold a little bit of space then. Is there anything you feel like before we come to the closing of our conversation that you felt like maybe we didn't hit today? I like to hold a little bit of space towards the end in case there's something still lingering for you. 
there are a lot of other people who are, who are saying this uh, in, in much better ways than me and have, have written fantastic pieces about it. Pleasure is revolutionary, right? It, it truly is. And what we're, what we're talking about when we talk about pleasure, I don't just mean instant gratification. Mm-hmm. I don't just mean the, the endorphin hits of consumerism. I mean the pleasure that accompanies vulnerability and play mm-hmm. and exploration and curiosity and exhilaration, that delicious inclusion of um, mystery and danger. Mm-hmm. Practices yes, yes. In a way that still lives within a container that we have co-created. Right. But within that container is a rich world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the more that people know about themselves and how to share themselves and share in others, the more empowered and uh, I think insightful, the more they make decisions from that place rather than from a place of ignorance and fear. Mm-hmm. And that's how I see it to bring it full circle. Why I see this work in the role of broader liberation, because when we feel more at peace within ourselves and expressive in our sensuality and our sexuality and our ability to nurture one another and to engage in the levels of emotional, physical intimacy that make us feel alive, that aliveness that changes how we look at and feel the need to control other elements of society. It shapes the way that we look at decisions that we have to make around how we manage our resources, how we look at human rights, how we value education and access. It changes all those things. And I think sexuality, as individual a journey as it is, is intrinsic to socially how we relate to how we relate to one another and the systems that guide our society, what their essential role and function is, and to what end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you think about repressed desires and shame and the amount of aggression that that creates towards other people from that repression absolutely and when we think about how taboo and how repressed all of us are at least in this country because of the social conditioning yeah when i see aggression and other sorts of stuff like that i do think it comes back to a lot of this is our own shame the all multiple layers of things that are getting in the way of intimacy at the end of the day, right? And connection with other people and the ability to play. I love how you had mentioned that earlier, right? We always talk about that inner child and where does that inner child go? And there are a multitude of ways to play. And when I th- one of the most beautiful is with other humans, right? Right? Mm-hmm. And at the core of all of this is our ability to play with other people and to feel love and to feel connected to something larger than ourselves, all other people in that way. So I think absolutely connection to yourself, your eroticism, letting go of shame, all of that is related to a grander revolution in terms of all these other societal factors. So yes, Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, we're on the same page. We're on the same page. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm with you, comrade. Yeah, we're in it together. (laughs) Well, then let me ask you the one question that I ask everyone on the podcast, which is what is one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal? Their sexuality. I mean, I think inherently it's it's simply that. It's one of the reasons why I love Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are, is because Mm -hmm. that's one of the biggest messages in the book is that you're really normal. 
and and the diversity of our human sexuality is the normal range of human sexuality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really it. Yeah. It's normal. Yes. And there are ways that we can live into that mm-hmm. in respect to our other to others and ourselves. And that alone, I think, like we said, would change everything to know that it's normal for you to be attracted to that thing that you think is so weird, right? It's normal letting go of that shame and being able to have the space where we can talk about that sort of thing is is radical. And I think all that comes back to, yeah, a a pleasure revolution, dare I say. Oh, well, it was so lovely to have a conversation with you and to learn about, yeah, your your experience and the beautiful healing work that you're doing. Is there anywhere you'd want to plug for your website, resources for people who are connecting with you and want to learn more about your work? So you can find me on Instagram um, at surrogate therapy. That's me. Some other uh, organizations and groups of my colleagues that I would strongly recommend, especially if you're interested in SPT, you want to learn about it. Uh, there's also videos and trainings for clinicians and clients. Um, look at IPSA, which is the International Professional Surrogates Association, IPSA.org. That's the um, certifying body that I'm trained, I'm training with. There's the Surrogate Partner Collective, which has a number of great training modules now for clinicians and for lay folk. And Embrace SPT, which is a um, cooperative of practitioners. Great. So those are three great resources. Get some good info reach out to them and I can be reached via my Instagram as well. Lovely, lovely. Yeah, I'll have all of that linked below so people can go directly to those resources and connect with you. Yeah, yeah. thank you for coming on the podcast today. If you enjoyed today's episode, then leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're a part of the anarchist community, then follow us on Instagram or nominate a guest for the show by sending in a letter to modernanarchypodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.